Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1911, Albert Einstein, a relatively unknown, aspiring theoretical physicist, published a preliminary theory of gravity, his theory of relativity. In their new book called Proving Einstein Right, The Daring Expeditions That Changed How We Look at the Universe, physicist S. James Gates Jr. and writer Kathy Pelletier tell the exhilarating tale of how seven astronomers traveled the globe eight years later to photograph a starlight and proved Einstein's theory of relativity to be correct. The book is published by Public Affairs and brings Jim Gates and Kathy Pelletier to our show now. Welcome. Hello, this is Jim Gates here. Thank you for the invitation. Hello, this is Kathy, and it's it's, uh, it's great to be here. Now, Jim is a, is a physics professor, and Kathy is the an award winning novelist, among other things. How did you come to collaborate on this book? Uh, was it there something about a TurboTax commercial involved? Kathy, you know, I'll I, let you I take said, it. Jim, do you, do you want us to really go into this, Jim? Should we? No, just course. make it a very brief thing. It just seems interesting. We're going to talk about Einstein and uh, and the and uh, the, the subject of your book. But I just thought it might be interesting for the the uh, the audience oh, to yes. hear a I little mean, bit Jim of this. Oh yeah, Jim said absolutely. We're going to talk about it. I didn't know if it was something that I should, but yeah, I'm wondering who do I find smart enough to do this book with me? Essentially, a novelist. I had written a kind of an extensive proposal, and wondering what to do. I'm eating potato chips on my sofa one night, and a turbo tax commercial comes on, in which they call in a brainiac to tell a guy named Marvin how to do his taxes. And I thought, well, I need him more than Marvin does. <laughs> so I emailed his. Um, I looked him up and, and emailed his um, office at the University of Maryland, and then heard from his assistant the next day. And Jim, why did you respond to her inquiry when you must receive many emails each day? <laughs> well, first of all, I receive lots of emails regularly, and they range from who knows what to whatever comes to someone's imagination. But what was uh, fascinating about uh, Kathy's email was a couple of things. First of all, uh, unlike a lot of the emails that I received, she provided lots of links so that I could see uh, something of her trajectory as a professional writer and uh, some of the awards. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is a serious writer. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. There were a couple of other reasons I wanted to do the book, though. Uh, one of them, I have been wanting to do a book like this for some time, uh, but and I wanted to do it for my students. Uh, mostly. I'm in my 49th consecutive year of teaching uh, either mathematics or physics at the university level. And one of the things that I observe often in students is they feel so insecure when they learn about giants like Einstein and Newton and Maxwell and all the other names of great scientists who have gone before them. And so this often generates anxiety among the students. The question is, how do I live up to that legend, that mythical person? And this is especially true for minority students, I believe. And so I want to write a book where we expose the fact that these seeming giants from the past are actually people, and they're pretty much like you, and boy, did they have struggles Let's share their struggles. Let's share their thoughts. Let's share their emotions. And that's why, as a physicist, I could never write such a book alone. Had uh, you already been awarded uh, the National Medal of Science by uh, President Obama in 2013 when Kathy called? Uh, well, uh, Kathy's call was approximately three, just about four years ago now. So that, that means, was after uh, that. It was, 
yeah, it's 2015. Uh, the award from uh, the from President Obama and the U.S. government was in 2013. And curiously enough, the award was actually the 2011 National Medal of Science. Most of your listeners will probably have heard of the Medal of Honor because we give that to our uh, our people in the armed forces who defend the country. And some of them may know about the Medal of Arts because great performers often uh, have a Kennedy Center um, event around their awarding. But there's also a National Medal of Science. And in 2013, to my great shock, I became a recipient. So let's get to the, uh, the the subject of your book. Was it difficult for Einstein to gain acceptance uh, of the theory at first because there was little hard evidence to show that it might even be correct? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, which to which of us the two of us? Well, are you I'm going to have to. Well, I'm going to have to rely on the two of you to work that out. Unfortunately, I can't <laughs> a, ask you questions directly, but uh, I assume that both of you know the answers to most of these questions. Well, absolutely. So, Kathy, uh, let's go to you first. Oh uh, well, yes, he did. Of course, I'd be more comfortable if Jim took an Einstein question. <laughs> um, if, if he thinks it was uh, a daunting subject for students, imagine how I as a novelist <laughs> felt when I was up against those same names. Um, and what about me, I, I, who got a, a C in physics in high school? Well, you took physics. Lucky for you. Well, I had no choice in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I came from a very tiny little uh, town at the very end of the road in northern Maine, and we didn't have physics. As I said, if we did, it would be taught by the art teacher, but we didn't have an art teacher. Mr. Johnson uh, told me he was giving me a passing grade only because he didn't want to have to see me again. <laughs> it's not that old joke as I gave you an F because it's the lowest grade I had. Um, Jim, do you want to take this about okay. Einstein? Well, I, I certainly can. Um, so did did all, most people uh, doubt what he was saying at the time? Yeah. Well, it wasn't even a matter of doubt. Most people simply didn't know. It's really very bizarre and little recognized that in 1911, Einstein wrote a set of equations which at the time he thought uh, for just correctly describe gravity. Well, it turns out those equations were wrong. But even though they were wrong and he didn't know it, he made an assertion that astronomers could make a measurement and prove him right. And he's lucky that they didn't make it too soon or else he would have been proven wrong. So he had to, uh, he had to like get a champion. Uh, in the community of astronomers uh, first. And the person who did that is a man named Edwin Finley Freundlich. And so we, we talk about the beginning of their relationship in the book. He's one of the, the heroes of your book. Uh, and you know and we'll get to that story it, later. Go ahead, Kathy. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. When you think about it, what we also realized was just how much little communication was going on back then. Even in 1911, before the outbreak of war, you know, we... Students now think of their cell phones and Twitter, and I, yeah, nothing was going on. I was astonished. What well, letters took a long time to, to get back and forth. I was astonished at one point that, jumping ahead just a bit, Einstein, in a letter to Freundlich, didn't know that William Campbell was conducting um, his own experiments in 1918. So, um, you know, that's another thing to keep in, in mind is that period of time. Now, in 1905, Einstein published a paper concerning an heuristic point of view toward the emission and transformation of light, a rather daunting title. Was that the precursor of his theory of relativity? Uh, well, well. first of all, there are two theories of relativity. This is one thing the public generally doesn't appreciate. The 1905 theory, which is the more famous one, because that leads to the equation E equals mc squared, which almost everybody has heard of in their life, um, 
that work was really about how strange our universe uh, will behave if you approach the speed of light. So that's not really the story that uh, the book is focused on, but that does provide the launching pad for a pad for why Einstein did the second general uh, theory of relativity, the so-called general theory, which we focus uh, upon in our work about how did astronomers come to accept that. So what did Einstein need to prove the general theory? Uh, it didn't it involve a photograph of starlight as it passed the sun during a total solar eclipse? Well, I have an analogy that I've been using for people, which is imagine you had a glass with a water and you were sitting opposite uh, uh, opposite to a friend. If you pass that glass of water between you and your friend's face, their face would appear to move even though they're not actually moving. What's actually happening, of course, is the light as it goes through the glass of water is being deflected. And so what Einstein's uh, equations, even though they were wrong in 1911, uh, because he didn't know how much the deflection was, but they pointed to this deflection, which actually Isaac Newton knew about. And so um, what he needed was to be able to produce that effect, not by looking at a friend's face, but by looking at starlight as it grazed the sun. And uh, if you stop and think about that, that's kind of impossible because the sun blots out all starlight during the day. So he needed an eclipse to actually watch this effect. Now, we were told in school that planets attract each other and that the sun attracts the Earth, and that's why the Earth stays in orbit around the sun and why the moon stays in orbit around the Earth, uh, based on Newton's universal law of gravitation. But didn't Newton realize that, although his formulation explained things like the motions of the planets and things falling to the ground, it left out the mechanism through which objects attract each other from a distance of, of relativity? Is that where Einstein comes in? That's certainly a major part of Einstein's contribution. And you are correct. Even Newton knew that these equations that he produced could not, in the end, be the complete story. Um, in our book, we have a, an analogy that we hope our readers will appreciate. It's, it's as if um, you were standing outside of a room, and you watched a man walk through the door, and every time he walked through the door, his hat blew off. Now, you might be able to measure the speed with which the hat flew off, but you wouldn't know why. And that was the position that Newton was in with regard to gravity. He knew how to describe how gravity would affect things, but he didn't know why it worked the way it did. Now, not much after all of this, the theory of quantum mechanics is developed, uh, also in the early 20th century, have attempts to reconcile it with Einstein's theory been successful? Or, or, or are they still at odds in the way that Einstein's theory is at odds with Newton's? Uh, they are, in terms of observation, they are still at odds. We still do not have an exp observational or experimental confirmation that quantum mechanics and the theory of general relativity, relativity are consistent. We do know mathematically that they're not consistent. So this is, in fact, a big challenge. And part of the, part of, uh, the attempt to resolve this challenge is something called string theory, which may, mm -hmm. probably you and many of your uh, audience members have heard of. It's the stuff that uh, Sheldon... I've, I've talked to a number of string theorists. They all disagree on on uh, all sorts of things, like how many dimensions Absolutely. there are. Absolutely. So there's no resolution yet. <laughs> So it's uh, none of this has been worked out yet, uh, but 
how how much can we apply what we do know to the the way the world works in our everyday lives? Well, I bet you and a lot of your listeners uh, depend on apps to to navigate around the city or uh, or and when they go on long distance driving. Mm-hmm. It turns out that those apps on your mobile devices actually make use of Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity to compute how to get you from one place to another. So to me, it's kind of a wonderful application of far out science, but has a practical everyday use that most people are just not even aware of the connection. So Einstein gave us the GPS in effect. He um. certainly contributed <laughs> to it, but let's not, let's not make him into Al Gore, who invented the Internet. <laughs> uh, according to Einstein's theory, light traveling... Uh, past a massive object like the sun should bend due to the sun's immense gravity. Was that rejected by most of the physicists at, of the time? Kat, do you want to take this? Or do you want me to? Oh, you know, I'm having such a good time listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but well, well, we can talk about songwriting later, Kathy. I forgot it was in the interview. It was so it was so interesting listening to Jim. Uh, Jim, go ahead. There'll be plenty okay. of questions I can I can field. Okay, so first of all, uh, Leonard, the, uh, it's, before Einstein, Newton had actually predicted that light would be bent also. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that this was a new prediction solely due to the genius of Albert Einstein. However, what actually happened was that Newton uh, made a prediction about how much the bending would be. And let me describe that to you in terms that are relatable. Imagine I had a dime that I was holding in my finger and uh, letting you look at it and asking you, which side of the dime am I pointing to? You would just look at it and say, oh, Jim, come on, you're pointing to the right side or the left side. Now imagine doing that if we are 1.3 miles apart. And I ask you, uh, Leonard, Mm -hmm. which side of the dime am I pointing to? I bet you wouldn't be able to do it without a really uh, powerful telescope. And so Einstein's prediction and Newton's prediction was that it's the thickness, approximately the thickness of a dime at 1.3 miles away. However, that's not the right answer. Einstein, after he calculated correctly in 1915, found out that it was two dimes. And so that's the amount of bending that these, uh, our hero astronomers were trying to measure during an eclipse. Now, so what did he uh, need to prove this theory um, other than uh, some intrepid astronomers who were willing to, 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 to put them, well, their lives in danger for him, in fact. Absolutely. That's what our book is about, the danger, the adventures, the romance, the, the, just the, uh, the challenge of being human trying to... It's amazing what happened right. to some of these, these people. They, they, they went to, went to jail. They went. That's right. The wars, they went to jails, they were on expeditions like Indiana Jones. It's just incredible. And Kathy has captured all that language. You know, Jim, so, I, would you point out what used to give me so much trouble? Uh, honestly, I, I was like a toddler at times with Jim. I kept saying, but why? But why? And what is that? What is that? Why are people saying that, that uh, photographing starlight to see if light did indeed, did indeed have weight? and would bend when passing such a large gravitational mass, why do they say that proved Einstein's theory when Einstein himself said the theory rests on three tenets, which was the wobble in Mercury's orbit, right, Jim, and gravitational redshift, which, Jim, when was that finally proven? I, I, 
so really, they proved his law of gravity, which was something that was giving me such a hard time, because all the books (laughs) were saying that it proved his law of relativity, uh, his theory of relativity, when in fact, the Jim, please correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, no, hey, wait. Can I throw in another phrase? Space-time yeah, sure. uh, continuum. <laughs> does does that the apply? Space-time continuum. Yes, it all does apply. Uh, so, first of all, as Kathy, uh, and I'm happy she was able to jump in. By the way, Kathy is a really quick student to everyone listening. She's Don't let her tell you that she doesn't know any physics. By the end of our book, she was talking physics. She can oh, talk right. physics when she wants to. Um, so, we'll see how uh, I do in the test. <laughs> <laughs> the final exam. <laughs> well, the final exam has already been submitted. It's our book, Proving Einstein Right. But uh, you oh, know, let, wise... In fact, let me tell people the, who I'm talking to and uh, and about the book for just a moment. My guests Please. are S. James Gates, Jr., or Jim Gates, and Kathy Pelletier, and their book is Proving Einstein Right, The Daring Expeditions That Changed How We Look at the Universe, published by Public Affairs. This is Leonard located at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. So let's get back to uh, the fact that uh, uh, these people had to to find an eclipse and to prove what Einstein was saying was correct. Yeah, well, first of all, let's go back and talk about Albert Einstein because he claimed that there were three pieces of evidence that he needed. One of them, uh, one of them, Kathy has already mentioned. We refer to it as a wobble in uh, Mercury's orbit. More technically, it's called the advance of the perihelion of the orbit of Mercury, but that's a clunky phrase. Wobble catches the right sense of it. So he said he needed to see the, the wobble. Well, the wobble had actually been seen before he wrote his equations. He just had to agree with it. They did. The second thing that he said was the bending of starlight. And that's what uh, our book focuses on is how much trepidation and trouble and challenges people had to go through in order to deliver that. The third piece of evidence to which Kathy alluded to a moment ago is the most remarkable part of all of, all of the story. This piece of evidence was not found by scientists until the 1970s. Mm. And so, in fact... Einstein wasn't proved right, as so many books say, by the Eddington um, observations. At least according to Albert Einstein, he wasn't proved right. Jim, I have a question for you that's just occurred to me. Uh, You know, just after the 1919 results came back, and uh, this was the British results, the two expeditions, that... uh, The Eddington expedition. Right, that proved that light did have weight. Einstein wrote a letter to the London uh, Times and said, you know, the theory still rests on those three tenets. And if I at one time thought Evershed in 1923 had proven the gravitational, uh, the, the redshift, but if it wasn't until 1970, did Einstein die thinking that he was not completely confirmed? You know that's a very good question, and I would, I would, you know, look. None of us are, are clairvoyant, and we certainly can't travel through time. However, um, I, as, as you know, Kathy, you I, don't know my theory about traveling through time. No, no just, <laughs> thank you, Leonard. <laughs> but as Kathy book. well knows, uh, in in uh, in uh, 2005, I gave 37 talks on five, or actually six continents about Einstein. So I read quite a bit about him. And during that period, I think I kind of got real deep insight into his thinking. So to respond to your question, Kathy, I would say the answer was no. He did not die feeling that he had not been confirmed. 
Uh, there's a very famous story about um, him saying that if the uh, if the astronomers had not agreed with his measurement, he would uh, have felt sorry for the good Lord. So he was pretty confident. And Kathy Einstein once said, I must search in the stars for what is denied me on Earth. What do you think he meant by that? Gosh, I don't know, but uh, we thought it made a wonderful epigraph for, <laughs> <laughs> for one of the chapters. Um, well, I, I guess that we pulled that when he was uh, realizing at the end of 1911 that he needed astronomers for that particular tenet of, for uh, um, his law of gravity. Right, Jim? I mean, That's exactly right. That's exactly and he, right. He, he, uh, and he, had, he has sort of been a bit disrespectful uh, of astronomers, considering it a rather pedantic uh, science. And then suddenly he needed astronomers. So uh, that's when Freundlich came into the picture. So let's talk about this group of astronomers. How did Einstein recruit them, and, and how did these teams come together? Well, he hardly recruited them in that he didn't even probably know they existed. Uh, Freundlich, on the other hand, wrote to Charles Perrine first down in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, Perrine was an American who had been at the Lick Observatory with William Campbell. Uh, they were great, great colleagues. And asked about, about um, and he started sending out letters at large, other uh, observatories in the United States, asking when you took your last eclipse expedition photographs, did you? Is it possible that we're going to see some evidence of what we're looking for? That and uh, as Jim has often said, you know, those photographs were not were ta- taken mostly with the solar corona, I believe, Jim in mind. Correct. And therefore, didn't they, they were useless to Einstein? So there had to be new expeditions. But it was mostly Einstein was really uh, aloof and unknowing of the astronomers. You follow astronomers from observatories in four countries who traveled the world during five eclipses to examine the light waves of stars. And that, that was a major commitment. So they obviously were committed to what Einstein was saying. You know, and what, what was so interesting to me is about these scientists themselves. Uh, my not being a scientist, uh, it, it, was, it was a curiosity. Jim, of course, understood it. But they're, they're not really setting out to prove something right or wrong, but to simply advance knowledge of, of the subject. And I'm, uh, Campbell, William Campbell, who was, in, in my opinion, the one who definitively, um, his result in 1922, the eclipse that he, he took photographs in Australia, definitively proved what the British almost suggested in 1919, if you read their letters. Um, they, they, they were interested that Campbell didn't believe it, and neither did Perrine, and they were two of the most major uh, astronomers involved in, in the whole testing of Einstein's theory. Jim, you want to help me out here? Yeah, no, no, you, you're doing a great job, Kathy. And this is something well, well, let's hole. talk a bit more about Campbell, uh, because uh, most people know about Sir Arthur Eddington in, as part of this story, if they know um, much of the story. Right. But uh, William W. Campbell, is, as you said, Jim, he built the Lick Observatory, which is still in operation. And served well, as actually first can't director. That, but she's right. Oh, okay. Also <laughs> was the president at the University of California, Berkeley, and then he was on that expedition that actually found better support for Einstein's theory of light bending than Eddington's had three years earlier. So yeah, he, he why, why is his name less? Why do we know Eddington's name and, and not Campbell's? Well, we have a whole chapter in the book about what the press actually did with those 1919 results. 
we were also coming out of a terrible war, as you know. You know, so many generations of of, uh, of people destroyed, and uh, some people believe there was a very good uh, science historian named Alistair Sponsel who did a lot of research on that about the need for something amazing and different and new and positive. Um, but the American press got involved after the London Times did the first um, releases about the results being read at Burlington House in, in London. And then it just kind of went a little crazy, you know, lights all skew in the heavens and all these kinds of things to really make people start wondering, even though, like me, they might not have had a course in physics. Uh, Jim? It was a front-page story in the New York Times, wasn't it? Absolutely it was. I'm not no, sure it was front page. I'd have to go back and look. It was 12, page 12 in the London Times. Well, the front page of the New York Times, the, heading, the headline was Revolution in Science, New right. Theory of the Universe, Newtonian Ideas Overthrown. That's right. That's the, the very famous headline for the New York Times. I've forgotten the date, but that's right. Um, but Kat is right in that uh, this, why... Uh, Campbell is not remembered, but Eddington is, I think is a very interesting story for our readers to, to contemplate. One of the things that we've done with this book is unpack a very complicated set of circumstances that has this cartoonish kind of explanation in, the, in most of the descriptions, but if you look deeply, you find that it is very confusing. And the role that the press and the public played in bringing this scientific um, discovery to the popular mind cannot be overlooked. And that's something we tried to pay a lot of attention to so that people can see the nuances and how the press and how the public, how non-scientists played a role in getting this uh, great discovery known by the rest of us. It did really grab the public's imagination and to the point where today if you want to put somebody down, you say, You're no Ein- he's no Einstein. We don't say he's no Eddington. He's no Campbell. <laughs> right. No Newton. Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at these papers because I studied those papers until my eyes bled. I believe the first time the New York Times mentioned it, it was not where the uh, coats from Australia were being advertised. And then the next day, the managing editor stepped up the pace, and the science story on page 17 appeared as the headlines, the book for wise men, and so on and so forth. So I'm just throwing that in there, gentlemen. Hmm. Oh no no I, I wasn't I wasn't uh, casting aspersions cap but no, eventually no, no. It escalated it, in other words it just exactly and that's more. what and that's in fact part of the story is how you can actually use the newspapers to watch the escalation and the yeah. elevation of yeah, Albert right. Einstein and then they tried to calm everybody back down by saying listen life's going to go on as it was before so okay so uh, over the years these. Uh, these uh, astronomers had to deal with World War One, which was really a problem for them. Lost equipment. Uh, they they faced the threat of deadly diseases, uh, illnesses, attacks by wild animals, unpredictable weather patterns, local superstitions. Where were they going? Jim, I'm going to let you jump on this one. May I confess that I've missed part of. The question, Leonard. I'm so sorry. I just I, I listed all of the the various things that they had to to face, including the war, uh-huh. but also attacks by wild animals, weather, local superstitions. Local superstitions were a lot of fun to read about. I don't remember any attacks by wild mm. animals, although that would have been a possibility, especially poisonous snakes and spiders. Yeah. Um, 
you know, in other words, the potential was there in, in various, you know, they went into some really wild territories. Where were they going? Uh, in 1919, you're asking? Yes. Or, or, or the others? Well, well in, 1919, in, in all of their looks for, for the, the okay. eclipses that were going to prove the, the theory one or disprove the theory. First of all, maybe, maybe we should make this clear in that an eclipse happens quite often. A total eclipse or a partial eclipse is an annual eclipse as well. But what they needed to do was travel to what is called the path of totality, which is a narrow band about maybe 70, on average, 70 miles wide, in which the eclipse is total. And, and this, the moon seems to apparently block the surface of the sun, and that's when a total eclipse occurs. So they had to travel back then to that narrow band, wherever it occurred in the world, that they could get to. In 1912, it was Brazil for the uh, English, and in 1918, uh, it was across the United States when Campbell was there. In 1919, and Campbell was trying to get his results done first, by the way, but he was very careful. So in 1919, Sir Frank Dyson at Greenwich sent out two expeditions. Eddington was at, um, at Cambridge at the time, and he headed one, and um, Andrew Cromlin and Charles Davison headed the other. And they went to uh, Eddington, went to a little island off the west coast of Africa called Principe. And the other two, they, they met in fun. They went as far as Liverpool to Funchal, Madeira. And from there, Cromlin and Davidson headed across the Atlantic to, again, northern Brazil. And Eddington and Cottingham, a clockmaker he brought with him, um, went on down to that little tiny island off the coast of Africa. Weren't they aided by the fact that one of those eclipses was the longest in the 20th century, six minutes long? Yes, yeah, over six minutes, actually. But yes, that was another good... And the stars in the Hyades were very rich, uh, a rich spread of stars that they had to photograph as well. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. More right after this. World of Science is my game Albert Einstein is my name I was born in Germany And I'm happy to be here in the land of the brave and the free Yes, I'm happy to be here in the land of the brave and the free Merely trying to survive Took my knapsack in my hand Caught a train from Switzerland We are back with our guest, S. James Gates, Jr., Director of the Theoretical Physics Center at Brown University uh, and uh, also uh, the Ford Foundation Professor of Physics. Uh, he uh, has received many awards, as has his co-author, Kathy Pelletier, the author of at least 12 books, and because she's written some under pseudonyms, uh, but they include The Funeral Makers and uh, also... Um, Two have been made into films. She received a million-dollar advance from Doubleday for her novel Candles on Bay Street. And she also 
uh, has a career as a songwriter. So this, uh, I guess, you, Kathy, your your venture into uh, physics is a real is something really different for you because this is not fiction. Very, very different for me, and I'm not really a songwriter. I don't know how that gets out there. I dabble. I, I well, you've written a number of songs that have been performed by some. David Byrne and uh, the Texas whatevers. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, they, we were going to play you know, that, but it was a little too inappropriate for this show. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, they were co-written, you know. And there's something. It's like if you co-write a novel, are you really a novelist? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm limited in my songwriting, and I have friends who do it for a living, so that's how I I know that so well. But um, it was very different for me as a fiction writer because. As I've said to Jim before, what I did not know, and it's something I want to talk to my novelist friends about to see if, you know, if they've ever had this experience, but as a fiction writer for 30 years, everything I wrote I knew was true. You know, if I said that it was snowing, it's snowing. If I said my character had on a red dress, she had on a red dress because I dressed her and I created the weather. Now, readers might not like her dress or her or my setting, but everything to me was true. I, I had all the facts, and sometimes you have to come outside your fiction and look for facts in reality, but I'm used to creating the truth. So when I came to write this book, I'd say to Jim, this isn't true, what, what is in this book and that book. You know, Davidson didn't go to that school, or this person didn't die then, or this. I, I was concerned with these facts, and I became absolutely obsessed with finding the truth, and I terrorized archivists all over the world. <laughs> I'm sure some of them are still in hiding from me now, but... I managed to locate, by reading old obituaries and things, I managed to locate grandchildren, and then I would go on Facebook and find great-grandchildren. So now I feel like I'm friends with William Campbell's grandchildren and Charles Davidson's granddaughters and Charles Perrine's grandson. So is Jim. They've actually met. So, yes, it changed me terribly. (laughs) And I don't mean terribly as a bad thing, but I had no idea I was that obsessed with factual things. It's interesting. And Leonard, can I can sure. I just give the other side of that? So uh, you know, look, I'm a classical nerd guy. I, I, I kind of came up. Uh, I, I wanted to start. I, I start. I found out about science at four years old. I always wanted to do science. Working with Kathy has changed me too. First of all, for this book. Um, needed to have a, an extraordinarily high level of literary accomplishment uh, beyond my ability, in fact, beyond any physicist I know. And she brought just the wonderful creative skills and narrative skills and high value of use of language to convey imagery. This Kathy and I worked as a conjoined brain to produce this book, and this is one of the proudest things that I've been able to do in life. The, the characters involved uh, could fill a novel, Frank Dyson was jailed for anti-war sentiment during World War I. Um, Eddington was also a pacifist who could have been jailed. Erwin Finlay Freundlich, you mentioned, he led an incomplete expedition in Crimea in 1914 because he was arrested during the war and his equipment was impounded. And Einstein uh, also got involved in politics. He was a war resistor who refused to sign the Manifesto of the 93, which 93 German scientists had signed, pledging their support of the German military during World War One. So politics also, as always, comes into <laughs> these stories. Right. The, the only thing I, I just want to correct, if you don't mind, Leonard. Please, Dyson, correct me. Dyson was never jailed that I know of. Oh. Eddington had the potential to go to jail uh, when he refused to, as a Quaker, 
refused to fight in combat and, and kill another man in World War One. He said, I'll peel potatoes, I'll drive an ambulance, but I'm not going to do that. And as a result, there was a lot of political intrigue uh, under the table at Cambridge about this. And was he sh- shrieking from his war duties? And he had some, he had some detractors about that. How? And go ahead. Weinlich went to prison for a short time, but it wasn't really prison. He was more detained than anything. That's another thing I've been trying to correct, as as Jim knows. Um, Jim. But that was at the U- in the Ukraine. The Ukraine. Uh, That's correct. <laughs> some, we can't yeah, get away from Ukraine, yeah. can we? <laughs> How was yeah? It was the Crimean Peninsula. Yeah, which uh, which uh, now the Russians have taken exactly. Yeah, Crimea River is the uh, <laughs> yes. You, did, that. you didn't write that song. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That would be another co-written one. So, how was their work funded? These uh, these various expeditions and what were they so, looking for as they I were photographing the stars? The same thing as today, Jim. It is much the same. Thanks, Kathy. That's exactly right. So um, the way that science is, and this is traditionally true. Let let me talk about science funding because this touches on an issue that's actually very relevant for for right now. Uh, Science funding, if you go back, say, a couple hundred years, was typically funded by wealthy individuals uh, in the same way that art is funded or music was funded, right? That you have wealthy individuals who thought there was some value to society as a whole and they would give grants to scientists and, and what have you. And this is good. This goes back all the way to Galileo's time that, uh, it was nobility that often funded, uh, great scientists. So how do we fund science today? Well, since the Second World War, uh, governments have understood that the funding of science is actually good for the economies of the country. And since you want a robust economy, uh, you know, science has been funded partially like that. But there are always far more scientists than there are opportunities uh, that could be funded. So it's always a struggle. And in the time of our expeditions, uh, Eddington um, basically, through Campbell, sought support from the British government and the uh, Royal Academy and what have you. And he was honored later by knight being knighted. Absolutely, by the uh, by the Queen, if I remember correctly. Uh, but I, I don't recall us talking about that in the story. But yes, he was recognized as having made extraordinary contributions to the to the culture and times of uh, of Great Britain. Was it being covered in the media while it was happening, or only after the paper was presented by Eddington? You mean the nineteen nineteen results? Yeah. Well, we're talking about going from. Uh, when did they start these expeditions? Well, they started, you know, it, it took a couple of years of fundraising, and then they didn't know, in this case, if the war would even be over. The Treaty of Versailles, I, I think, was signed um, either just as they were leaving or just after. You know, it, they, they left before it was actually signed. But um, funding took a couple of years, at least back then. And as far as getting it out to the press, um, this is something that, again, Alistair Sponsel has done a great job in researching, but... Dyson would send little notices that would come out in the um, in the, 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 the science magazines and a little bit in the London Times as well that the expeditions were going ahead and finally that they were there. And then there's another one that came back that pretended Cottingham had written, which is the clockmaker. I'm pretty sure Eddington wrote the... In, in other words, it was more to get... The public somewhat interested in the fact that this was going on, but no, no great deal of press, not even really after um, until the New York Times got involved. 
Now, the work took place over the course of a decade. Uh, did the search to prove the theory become a competition of sorts? It was very much a competition, and Einstein's is one of the luckiest persons I've ever read about. Um, so the 1914 uh, episodes, which we cover in our book, and those are the ones that were involved with the, the Crimea and the, the, uh, and the uh, First World War, um, the... Uh, if 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 any of those expeditions had been able to make the measurements in 1914, what we would know today was that Albert Einstein first came to the attention broadly by being wrong, because his prediction in 1914 comes from his 1911 mathematics, and that answer is wrong by a factor of two. So he's an incredibly fortunate individual that we did, that no one was able to surmount the challenges, whether they be weather or detentions or or uh, impounded equipment to prevent the measurements. Um, it, 1914 would have been devastating for uh, if a successful measurement had been made for, Al, uh, for Albert Einstein. Now, the expeditions uh, that you mentioned earlier, one was to northern Brazil and the other was the island of Principe. Uh, why there? Were, were they better places to photograph the stars to confirm the theory of relativity? Well, there were two well, very um, uh, different places, of course, across the globe. And it, within the path of totality, which I think was about 70 miles wide then, so they got um, advice from Brazil. Um, Dr. Uh, Maurice who was there running the observatory in Rio de Janeiro, sent them a great deal of information about Sobral in northern Brazil and that the Brazilian government would be all too happy to accommodate them. Uh, Eddington had written to Lisbon, Portugal, because Principe was then a Portuguese outpost and um, got plenty of information and advice from them, maps uh, of the island and such. So uh, having them that far apart, they had learned by this time that more expeditions for one observatory sent to different locations would give them a better chance of success because they could plan for two years and three years and get there and clouds could go across the sun during those few minutes of totality and everything was lost that's how much was riding on that expedition especially back then an astronomer said to me i asked him some questions a friend of jim's and he said to me, I'm no longer going to complain if I have to fly in business class instead of first class when I go to the next expedition. And <laughs> these guys were at sea sometimes for seven weeks, uh, two months at sea. And everything wrote on those few minutes of totality, six minutes, four minutes, three minutes. I think William Campbell said that in an astronomer's lifetime, if he's lucky, he might have 40 minutes to stare at, to stare at the, um, the, the, the blackened sun during a total eclipse. Of course, our president stared at it without glasses. Did these people uh, at least protect their eyes? Uh, what, what, what did the, the photographs reveal, and, and how did they prove the theory of relativity? So, the, so the, the, to understand what was going on, um, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. So I'm, let me imagine that you were one of the astronomers, and I, and I, I say, Leonard, mm -hmm. go out and do the following. Uh, one night, I want you to um, I want you to photograph the sky, and the sun's obviously not going to be out at night. But I want you to take pictures of a set of stars. So you don't just take pictures of one star; you take a collection of stars. And I say, okay, okay, I want you to set that that picture aside. Now, 
during the day of the eclipse, I want you to go and take a picture of the stars that you can see because this moon has blotted out the sun, but the stars that are around the edges of the sun. So then you take another set of pictures. So now we have two set of pictures. What's the difference between them? Well, the difference is in one, the sun is there to influence the path by which the light travels. And so by comparing those two sets of plates, you it will look to you as if the stars had moved. Well, the stars haven't moved. But the measurement of their movement will tell you how much the light deflected. And that's the essence of these experiments. So it, it, it proved that uh, the gravity of the sun bent the, the, the light Exactly. Rate. That was the key point. And uh, nobody had, had uh, suspected – well, nobody thought that light could be something that had a physical, a physical aspect to it. That's not quite true. Uh, well, Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, Newton actually, when he finished his theory of gravity, actually made predictions about the bending of starlight. It just turned out they are wrong. And he also had no means of experimentation then, right, Tim? That's exactly right, Kathy. Thank you for bringing this point up. Because oftentimes people think science is somehow like magic. But it's by the technology of the time at which the scientists are actually performing the observations. So when Newton predicted starlight would be bent, there was no way to actually go out and measure that prediction. And that didn't really happen until the turn of the uh, century, like the 1800s to 1900. The equipment step kept getting better. You mentioned uh, Johann Saldner or not, but in, uh, yes. in 1804, yes, um, yes. yeah, he came up with almost the same measurements as Newton, and again, left, uh, the, stayed buried. Nobody really bothered to, to find out, he, he couldn't have done any experimentation. And then 100 years later... Well, they didn't have photographs time. at the time, or at least... Ah, you know. Leonard, key point. Yeah. <laughs> you need photography. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, um, I, I told Jim one day, they, they remind me of tag team scientists, you know, how they all got connected like dolls, passing on an idea about it. Um, yeah. Oh. And that's true. That's true, Kat. That's an scientist is the recipient of so much that is passed down from those who have gone before them. Uh, Albert Einstein actually during his life commented about the, the, the gratitude that one has to feel as a scientist because it's not you doing it. You're doing something for a whole community of people. Now, he was a theoretical scientists, so that's different than being an astronomer or, or a physicist. It is, and Leonard, you touch on something that I often try to emphasize to people by making the following statement. It is an observation and experiment that prevents physics from being a faith-based organization. That is, physics does not exist in physics, the kind of physics I do and string theorists do. Yes, that's mathematics, but Mathematicians do mathematics better than we do. So why in the world should we be doing this? Well, the point is because we are only focusing our efforts on making predictions that ultimately can go out and be measured, even if that's hundreds of years after we make the prediction. Although the, the solar eclipse they photographed was in May 1919, the findings in their report weren't released until months later in November 1919, and they were delivered to a packed audience of scientists in London. So um, did that uh, change science forever? Um, it obviously had a real impact on uh, how we viewed Isaac's law of universal gravitation. 
Jack, can you speak to that? Well, I would rather you did. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, don't uh, ask me to do Leonard, it. I'm, I'm the one who okay. asked the questions. Are you sure, Leonard, you don't want to do it? <laughs> Leonard, I, no, no, I, so very quickly, I very quickly started calling us Professor Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so did it change science forever? Well, it did a couple of things that are extraordinarily interesting. It is the first example in the history of physics, because remember, physics only got invented with Sir Isaac Newton. It is the first example in physics where uh, a, something that was well-established as a law was falsified. And so it changed physics in the sense that, not just physics, it actually changed science in the sense that we, up until that time, people had always thought of science as about verification, namely, you know, someone has a law, it makes a prediction, you go out and verify that law. But what this did is show that you could make observations that no, that don't verify law, but actually call for the law to be replaced. And this is something that a philosopher by the name of Karl Popper was really the person to really hone into um, most exquisitely. And so it changed science's understanding of what science does, which is uh, an, incredible, uh, an incredible outcome. Um, but it did not change the methodology of how to do science. How do you do science? You rely on extraordinarily careful measurement and observation, and then you try to explain those results with a piece of rigorous mathematics. And that did not change because of, of, of Einstein's uh, observations. One of the, uh, the one aspect of the story is how history is told. Sir Arthur Eddington became famous. Einstein obviously was famous. But the others who we've been talking about have been largely overlooked or, or forgotten, uh, despite the, the important roles they played. I think that's the well, luck of the draw sometimes, you know. And let me just say, again, pay tribute to my co-author here, because in a very real sense, uh, this book is a re provides a reincarnation of all of these incredible men, and they were mostly men, who had who played such an incredible role in this uh, establishment of science. Um, Kathy uh, writes about these people in such a way, and, you know, I, I, I'm there to get the science right, but in terms of the narrative, lyrical poetry of their lives, uh, she has just uh, rendered them starkly uh, objective and real for the reader so that you we hope that our readers will feel that they have gotten to know these people by the time they uh, finish the book I know for me that that was uh, just an amazing uh, sense of uh, gratitude and accomplishments that I could work with a novelist and this points to something that is often said in our society uh, so I'm a theoretical physicist yeah I basically do math of a, a strange sort and we're associated with science technology engineering mathematics it's called stem but many people have observed that stem needs to be made into steam where the a is the art and this is what our work is all about Oh, that's interesting. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is that we were very lucky to catch the grandchildren when we did and to get documents, letters, things. And I think, Jim, I, I, I've never really put numbers to this, but at least a fourth of our book has never been written before. 
um, the backgrounds who and and also it's it's hard to talk about our book. Sometimes we we would do an interview and we say we didn't mention this, we didn't mention that. <laughs> the book is about the histories of the areas in which the expeditions took place. It's about the personal backgrounds that we could find out through letters and documents provided by grandchildren and great grandchildren. Their per- Einstein's divorce and and uh, marriage to. Uh, Maleva has been talked about before, but we tried to add to that. And the history in the world, what was going on in the world at this time, it fascinated me that, that uh, the Spanish flu was a pandemic, mm. and, and they were still making plans to go, and they almost never mention it. A doctor in Brazil gave me a lot of information about that. The president of Brazil died of the flu about three months before the expedition uh, landed in Sobral, in northern Brazil. So stuff like that interested us, and the book is full of that kind of thing. And the science is, of course, the core of it, and Einstein is the core, but there's so many satellites going around in, in the book that it's hard to talk about it. Now, also, this this uh, discovery led the groundwork for the Big Bang Theory, didn't it? In a sense, yes, because you have to have confidence that Einstein's 1915 work, which led to the correct prediction, you have to have confidence that this is what nature does. And the Big Bang, although a lot of people have heard of the Big Bang, the Big Bang is, in fact, not a creation of Albert Einstein. In fact, the Big Bang was a proposal from an Augustan priest by the name of Georges Lamatra. And so um, the idea that the universe begins with this event that we call the Big Bang uh, was actually uh, suggested by a man of the cloth, which to me is very poetic in terms of of, uh, what people often perceive as an impossible chasm between science and faith. Now, you served on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, PCAST, from 2009 to 2016. It's a team of advisors to the President on Science and Technology. Um, And what were some of the key issues that you were addressing during your tenure? Well, first of all... um well, first of all, we you know we had a president who thought that science had something to bring to the table in uh, bettering the lives of uh, citizens in our country. And President Trump and hasn't appointed new members to PCAST. That's not true. This is little known, but as of October of last year, the current president did finally appoint a PCAST. So uh, there is a PCAST in existence right now. Uh huh. And uh, these are I- issues that are being uh, th- that would will affect foreign federal policy. Uh, that's the. I mean, are we talking about P- global warming and things like that? I suspect this PCAST is not, mm-hmm. uh, given uh, the position that this administration has broadly and uh, loudly proclaimed about uh, about the imminence of this danger. So I suspect that's not a topic that will be discussed by this PCAST. Now, one other thing. You completed a DVD series called Super String Theory, the DNA of Reality, these are lectures to help non-physicists understand theoretical physics behind uh, super string theory. Uh, that was, uh, what, uh, 14 years ago. Has That's much, right. has much changed? Well, not, <laughs> yes and no, but not from, how, let's see, how to explain this. Yes, uh, there uh, there uh, is a. There used to be a company called the Teaching Company. Now they have a different name, and they stream 
uh, video presentations about all kinds of subjects, including science. And so, yes, I can find uh, it on YouTube. I, uh, not on YouTube. You have to contract. You have to. They're kind of like uh, streaming, like streaming video services. Mm-hmm. So you can contact them, and they'll you know stream for you. Um, so you ask as much change. Well, not really for the work that I did, and that's because I wanted to create something that would be relatively timeless. And although string theory has gone through various evolutions and what have you, I tried to make it shoot judicious choice of discussions that would be relevant for at least 20 years. And I think I more or less succeeded. So, for example, in that lecture series, I talked about the discovery of the Higgs boson, which you might Mm -hmm. not obviously connect to string theory, but it does have connections. And so um, there is in in my uh, lectures a whole set of topics about the Higgs boson and how it ties together with unification, which is a key feature in string theory. I also talked about gravity waves uh, in, in that uh, 1905 lecture series, and we have computer animations that were basically visions in my mind that that I thought would be helpful to people. So these things have, to this day, stand the test of time, and the things that I thought would be passing fads, because let's face it, science is just like any other human activity. It's social. Uh, there's part of it that has uh, an, an ex- expiration date attached to it. And so when I put together the series, I tried to figure out what I thought would have expiration dates and avoid those subjects. Well, we, so, we've run out of time ourselves. But my well, great thanks go. to the two of you, S. James Gates Jr., Kathy Pelletier, their book, Proving Einstein Right, the, the Daring Expeditions That Changed How We Look at the Universe, published by Public Affairs. I thank you both so much, but also uh, want to alert our audience to the fact that uh, that Jim Gates will be returning to BAI in the near future. He'll be in conversation twice with the host of BAI's It's a Good Day, Johanna Fernandez, uh, first on Wednesday, January 22nd. Oh, so you can tune in to that show at 7 a.m. It's a good day to hear the interview. And then you can join Johanna and Jim for a live interview at the Brooklyn Commons after the broadcast. That's at 10 a.m. The Brooklyn Commons is at 388 Atlantic Avenue. Again, both of those interviews are on Wednesday, January 22nd. Tickets to the live events at the Commons are $10, but free to WBAI buddies. To find out more, go to WBAI.org. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison, who produced the segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Lent Located Lodge on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LendedLocatedLodge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Michael Aaron Rockland will discuss the history of the George Washington Bridge. And we will see you then. 